Morning. It's good to be here with you guys. And it's beautiful out, is it not? And it will continue to get more and more beautiful (laughs) until we melt. Thank you. (laughs) Which is like Thursday to Friday. Um, Good. Well, we're going to be in the Bible this morning. And the story we're going to read is not in my daughter's Bible. She's three. And that's because it's all about demons. (laughs) But not just demons. Thousands of demons who leave a man and then inhabit pigs and then drown those pigs. Whoa! It's not in Ella's Bible. And that's probably a good thing. She's not ready for it yet. But... It is in our Bibles, so we are going to talk about it, but it's less about demons and more about showing us the beauty of who Jesus is. We're in a series we're calling Jesus and Impossible Cases. Can anybody relate with being an impossible case? And we're seeing just what Jesus can do. Last week, we saw him look at a severe storm that very well could have taken his own life and he calmed it with three words, peace, be still. Next week we get to witness him heal a woman who's been suffering under a chronic bleeding illness for 12 years. And that's all during his commute to raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead. And this week, We get to see him display authority, not only over the natural realm, not only over illness and death, but also over the spiritual realm. Our passage last week ended with the disciples fearing for their lives, not because of the storm, but because of Jesus. After he calms the storm, they're afraid. They have great fear of this guy. And they ask an appropriate question. Who is this guy? Our passage today furthers our understanding of what this guy, Jesus, is like. And it encourages us to answer the question, what am I going to do with Jesus? Now we can respond to his great power, his greatness, his great otherness, and and we can be fearful, just like the disciples, just like the townspeople will end up doing today. And like the townspeople, we can end up pushing Jesus away and saying, I'm not ready for this. I don't want this in my life. Or we can be like this demon-possessed man does later when he puts his complete faith and hope in this man, Jesus. But Jesus never forces himself on us. He lets us decide for ourselves if we're going to embrace him for who he fully is. And we learn from this passage that we can entrust ourselves completely to him, wholly to him, because he is mighty, yes, but he is also meek and he is also merciful. 
So we'll be in Mark chapter 5 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, there, is, there are Bibles in front of you in the pew. Um, it's the black bound Bible. We'll be on page 840 in that Bible. But otherwise, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 5. All right, we're going to read verses 1 through 20. Going to get the whole thing in one swoop this morning. Because, man, this is a good story. Are you ready? All right, Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray. God, allow us to see more clearly who Jesus is this morning. Lord, let our preconceived notions, or the, the ideas we've built up about Jesus fade away as we just look at what he's like. And may we understand that Jesus, you are somebody we can trust. And you are somebody we can entrust ourselves to. 
We ask that you'd open our minds to understand the scriptures by your Holy Spirit this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So, in the opening verses, one and two, we get the setting and we get the characters. The setting is the Sea of Galilee, just like it was last week, although this time it's not on the Sea of Galilee, it is getting out of the Sea of Galilee onto the shore, the country of the Gerasenes. Now, this area, um, basically Gerasenes is to Seattleites as Gerasa is to Seattle. These are, this is the country of the people of Gerasa. There's a footnote there about, about um, Gergesenes and Gadarenes, and um, if you're interested in all that, talk to me later. But basically, this is the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake teeming with fish. There's a big fishing industry on it. And three of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, um, Peter, James, and John, were fishermen who worked this lake, among others. So they cross the lake. They arrive at this country of the Gerasenes. And we meet our other characters. So, of course, Jesus is our primary character. Then we have the Gerasene people. We have this man. And, of course, finally, we have demons. The rest of our story basically describes the encounters each of these characters has with the person of Jesus. So, verses 3 to 5, we get an understanding of who this guy is. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Hanging out with this guy does not sound like the funnest place to be right now. For one thing, he seems a little bit dangerous. Secondly, in the Jewish understanding, this guy is about as unclean as it gets. He's in a Gentile area, non-Jewish. He is a Gentile himself. He hangs around dead bodies all day, and wait for it, with pigs, and then also filled with demons. No self-respecting Jewish rabbi would be caught dead with and around this guy. He made every other person feel uncomfortable. And it's not mentioned here, but I, I, I can't help but observe that the disciples don't even get out of the boat. <laughs> They're just sitting in the boat waiting for this thing to kind of uh, shake down. But Jesus, he doesn't bat an eye. He gets right out of this boat and he meets this guy head on. This man is living a heartbreaking existence. If you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll find that Mark is the shortest one. He's pretty succinct. He's pretty short and sweet with vivid details. But that is not true of Mark for this story. Although Matthew is about 30% longer than Mark, He tells this story in seven verses, where Mark tells this story in 20. For Mark, this is is long. This is long-winded for this um, gospel writer. And what he spends the most time telling us about is this man's lived experience, what he's been through, what he's going through, 
how he's been treated. Why? It's character development. Mark wants us to see the fullness, the weight of this guy's, just the depths of his suffering, the depths of his his experience, so that we can see the glory of what Jesus is about to bring to him. He wants us to see the contrast. And we're going to see him transform from a raving, naked shell of a human being to a human being who's clothed, conversant, and dead set on following Jesus. Now, we can't really get around the fact that we're reading a passage of Scripture that tells us that demons are real. Okay? Now, this can be tough for us postmodern Westerners because the worldview of our dominant culture, especially here in Seattle, says that this stuff can't be proved, therefore probably can't be real. We just don't have the categories for immaterial concepts like demons. And I'm not really here today to try to convince you that demons are real. But Scripture clearly teaches their reality, and there's no pitchforks, and there's no red tights involved. And Jesus clearly believed they were real. And it seems to me like it is in the devil's best interest if we just go right, a, right ahead believing that he's not real. And if you're looking for empirical evidence for the existence of demons, there's actually some in this story. Did anybody notice it? Why else would 2,000 pigs rush into the sea and kill themselves? That's an observable fact. Why else would that have happened if not the reality of what Jesus says happened? But two other things I want to mention regarding demon possession. First, biblically, Christians cannot be possessed by demons. Scripture tells us that Christians' bodies are a temple of who? The Holy Spirit. As well as that he who is in us the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil, his demons. But that doesn't mean that Christians cannot be oppressed by demons. Scripture is completely clear throughout the New Testament that they can and they do attack. They do harass. They do oppress. And you can read in Ephesians 6 of the full armor of God that can withstand these attacks. And we'll find out today who is truly in authority over these demons, over this entire spiritual realm that we cannot see. If you're in Christ, you're safe, period. The second thing I want to mention is that demon possession in Scripture is not a catch-all for causing all illness or even all mental illness. Back in chapter 1, Mark actually differentiates between illness and demon possession. He separates the two. So it's not just an ancient way to describe mental illness, because mental illness is real. But Jesus here is after one thing in this story. It's the deliverance of this one guy. But he's got to deal with the demons first. These demons are really, and we're going to get into their 
encounter with Jesus. They're the first character to truly come head-to-head with Jesus in this story. And this encounter illustrates that Jesus is mighty and is worth entrusting our whole selves to. These demons have this man in their clutches, and they've been driving him to isolation and mutilation, feeding him terrible lies. Hurt yourself. Be alone. He's been ostracized from his community. And one author writes that the demon's goal is to destroy and distort the image of God in this man. And if that means to take away his community, to take away his will and his purpose, then so far they've been doing a great job. Let's Let's read again what happens here in verse 6. When Jesus, or sorry, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. When Jesus shows up, these demons cannot help but throw the man and themselves before Jesus' feet. Now this word, fell down before him, that is connotating prostration in homage. Complete surrender to the superiority of who you're before. These demons know their place before Jesus, on their knees, awaiting his judgment at the mercy of his word. It isn't whether Jesus will cast these demons out. It's where they're going to go. All that's left to take care of is the logistics. And they know who he is. They actually say his name there in verse 7. Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, what they're doing there, and they say, I adjure you, they're trying to get Jesus to do something. They're using an ancient idea that if you named your opponent correctly and accurately, you might gain mastery over him. And so they use his full name, but it doesn't work. It might work with someone like Ron Swanson, who guards his middle name so that he can't be blackmailed. It's Ulysses. But of course, it's not going to work with Jesus. So the demons seek to get Jesus to leave them alone. But Jesus, as we see in verse 8, he was already commanding them to leave. And the demons interrupt him with a loud cry. Wait, hold on. Let us try what we've got. But of course, the command's already been given. So Jesus asked the man his name, and he answers, My name is Legion. For we are many. Now, legion is a Roman military term that meant roughly like three to six thousand soldiers. So, correlating this with the name of this man and the fact that there are many demons and at least maybe two thousand, considering the pigs, there's a lot going on in this guy's head. Imagine you're this guy for a minute, you have no personality. You have thousands of personalities. None of them are your own. What a terrible place that this man is in. 
But finally, this man has deliverance in the power and might of this random Jewish rabbi who got off at the wrong stop. So all that's left is to take care of where they're supposed to go. And here, in verse 10 and 12, we have the first of three requests made of Jesus in this story. All three characters beg Jesus for something. The demons here beg Jesus not to send them out of the country, but rather to inhabit this herd of pigs. Now, this is a Gentile area. It's not a Jewish area, so a herd of pigs would have not been uncommon. But of course, for a Jew, this was not exactly a recommended hangout spot. But the interesting thing here is that Jesus grants their request. He gave them permission. But notice, until he gave them permission, they could do absolutely nothing. They know their place before the person who made them and who ultimately will judge them at the last day. The Gospel of Matthew tells us even that hell itself, like Matt talked about earlier, hell itself was created for the devil and his demons. Now, I'm sorry to say that nowhere here does Mark um, address the thought that may have crossed your minds. Poor pigs! Right? Or perhaps poor town. Animal life was lost. And this town's economy was probably devastated. And Mark makes no mention of it. Of course, that doesn't mean those things aren't important, but Jesus clearly set his priority on the deliverance of this one man. That was his priority. Jesus is mighty. We can bring him even our biggest problems. They are no match for his power. Do you have scary parts about you that even you don't dare to think about for very long? Jesus is willing to go there with you. He will go there. He's not ashamed of you. He's not afraid of your problems. He's not afraid of demons. And why should he be? They quiver at his word. Wow. My, my buddy recently told me of a dream he had. And at the time, he was, he was um, struggling with some sin in his life. And he had a dream, and in the dream, he was trying to close a door. But there was something on the other side, something evil that would not let him close it. And he heard from God in that moment, and God told him, these things, these behaviors, these, these struggles that you're indulging, they are letting in evil into your life. So it was a sobering dream. It was a sobering voice message from God. But then, while he's still in this dream, he looks up, and there's an angel sitting on the threshold, on the wall above the door, and the angel is just sort of looking down at the whole situation and kind of smiling, smirking. And my buddy's like, why are you smiling? And the angel told him, have you seen how puny these guys are? compared to who we serve. And so there was both a sobering message as well as an understanding that 
these forces, these demons are no match for the person we serve. This guy's fate was sealed. He was going to die probably an awful death, having a legion of demons tormenting him. That was his law in life until Jesus showed up. That's the kind of power that Jesus speaks into our lives. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, great for this guy, but I'm still in the thick of the struggle with, with my issues. Me too. Even if Jesus doesn't completely remove our struggles, he presides over them. They have no power unless at his permission. Their presence might remain, but he removes their power over you. And struggles, Jesus allowing struggles into our life might be a scary thought. Until you get to know him, then you find out that he's not only mighty, he is also meek and merciful. Let's reread verses 14 to 18. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened and, excuse me, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now, the second character that encounters Jesus in this story is the townspeople, the Gerasenes. And it's in this encounter that we discover Jesus' meekness. What's interesting is these townspeople's response to this incredible act of deliverance. They freak out. They flee the scene. They're scared, just like the disciples were in our last story last week. But it, again, it's an ironic fear. These people are more afraid of the power of Jesus to heal and restore this man than they were of the man himself. They've gotten used to the ravings of a naked, possessed man, but a man who can exorcise demons with just a word? No, can't do it. I didn't. I can't be around this. And you might argue, well, aren't they just upset about the pigs? They probably were upset about the pigs, but it doesn't tell us they're upset, or it doesn't even tell us that they're angry. It says that they are afraid. Luke tells the same story, and he tells us that the town was seized with great fear. I don't think it's about the pigs. It's about this power that they are not accustomed to, and they do not want it to stick around. And so we get the second request of the story, verse 17, the townspeople beg Jesus to depart from their region. And look how Jesus responds to their response. Okay. He just leaves. Verse 18 starts with, as he was getting into the boat. He doesn't rebuke the town for fearing him and asking him to leave. He just leaves. He's meek. 
One commentator writes, most people, if they were asked, would probably say that they would like to see a manifestation of God. But when God manifests himself in Jesus, most people ask him to leave. Last week, the disciples' initial reaction to Jesus' power was also great fear. But ultimately, they didn't let it stop there. When Jesus first calls Peter as a disciple, it was also on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus comes to Peter. Peter's mending his nets after a long night of not catching anything. And Jesus says, hey, can I use your boat for a pulpit? So he sits down in his boat and he starts teaching, teaching people. And when his message is over, he says, hey, Peter, why don't you just push out and we'll, we'll try and catch some fish real quick. And Peter's like, oh, oh, Jesus, I'm exhausted. I tried, we tried all night. There's nothing. And I'm going to bed. But eventually he says, okay, I'll do it. You said so. I'll, I'll just go ahead and do it. Let's down his net. The net gets so full that he can't, they can't even lift it out of the water and into the boat without the boat sinking. And so while all of Peter's friends, co-workers, are, are coming to help and to take advantage of this financial opportunity, as well as just, whoa, Peter realizes what's going on, and he just drops to his knees. And he says to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter saw Jesus' power and could not help but draw a contrast from himself. But then Jesus tells Peter in that moment of fear and despair, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And from that moment on, Peter stayed right by Jesus' side. He was not worthy of the presence of Jesus. He could have pushed Jesus away at that point and said, no thanks, that's a little too uncomfortable just like the townspeople do here. But he knew that Jesus, though intensely other than him, was not someone he should push away, but rather someone he should draw near to. Now, we have the same choice to make. Every human being, the Bible says, has to decide what to do with Jesus. And why is that? Because history itself is heading to a certain culmination point. And who's going to be sitting on the throne? It's Jesus. The Bible declares that God has manifested himself in Jesus, and we decide whether to embrace him for who he is or push him away. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, is it because you've seen Christians and decided you don't like their political stances? Is it because you think you have to keep a long list of arbitrary rules? Neither of those are valid reasons to reject Christianity. The only valid rejection of Christianity is one that looks at who Jesus is, what he's done, and says no to what he offers. This is because what Christianity is at its core is an acceptance of what Jesus has done for you as well as a submission of your entire life to him. Have you taken a good look at Jesus and decided you don't need him? Remember, he will not force himself on you. You can push him away, out of your life, or even just to the margins of your life. But a marginal Jesus is not the true Jesus. It isn't enough to think Jesus was just a cool guy. And why isn't that enough? 
Why can't we just acknowledge the contributions Jesus made to ethics and get on with history? It's because Jesus is alive. He didn't just contribute to ethics. He didn't just contribute to history. He will be the end of all history. He's the one who's going to be sitting there receiving worship from all people and judging the living and the dead. That's Jesus. And that is good news because of who he is and what he's like. He is mighty. He is meek. And finally, he is merciful. Let's finish 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The most important character to encounter Jesus here is, of course, the demon-possessed man. His encounter is woven throughout the narrative, but in these last few verses, we discover the true impact Jesus had on his life. This encounter displays Jesus' mercy. Look at the contrast of where this guy was and where he is after this unexpected but God-ordained meeting with Jesus. In verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And then verse 15, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. He got his life back. He wasn't in his right mind, and now he is. I used to work on a unit in the hospital. It was, it was the stroke unit, but we also just received all of this, basically any reason they could find where the brain was, was affected. You know, if traumatic brain injury, brain infection, we got them all. We saw people who were healthy people who in the blink of an eye were not in their right mind. It's a brutal place to work. Didn't last very long there. But for those, you know, who have a stroke or who have these issues, who can regain the ability, the ability to properly think again, wow, they will never take that for granted again. And this guy receives a gift from Jesus that he will never take for granted. He's been changed. He's been delivered. Jesus went literally out of his way to show mercy to this one man. It reminds me of the parable in Matthew that Jesus tells of a shepherd. He has a hundred sheep, and one of them scurries off into the wilderness and gets itself lost. And you know what the shepherd does? He doesn't count, you know, count his losses and say, well, at least I still have 99. He leaves the 99 and goes after that one. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus for this man. That's the heart of Jesus for you. That's the heart of Jesus for your coworkers, for your family. So when Jesus suddenly decides to go ahead and leave, like the townspeople want him to do, this man jumps up and begs Jesus to let him be with him. And can you blame him? This phrase, be with him, harkens back to 
uh, a verse in chapter 3 where Jesus calls the 12 disciples. And what it says he does is he calls the 12 disciples that they might come and be with him. This man wanted desperately to be a close disciple of Jesus. His is the third and final request in this story. And the interesting thing is, it's the only request that Jesus doesn't grant. Jesus grants the demon's request. He grants the townspeople's request, but he does not grant this man's request. He says, no. But then he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man was looking for purpose in his new life. You know, before his purpose was no purpose. Now he's looking for purpose. And getting off this rock and hanging out with this guy Jesus, that sounds like a good plan. But Jesus essentially says, no, no. I have a purpose for you. You don't need any further training. You just need to be open with your testimony of being set free. Jesus lets him participate in his own mission to the world. And we're all looking for purpose. That's one of the things that marks us out as different than all other creatures. We sit there and think, what is our purpose? The other creatures don't do that. They just do it. It's instinctual to them. But we're like, where's our purpose? And you've been in places where you might feel like you're aimless. That's a hard place to sit because we're made for purpose. Jesus gives us purpose by graciously letting us participate in the reconciliation of people to their creator. Now, notice that Jesus, for this guy, he doesn't command secrecy. And if you've been with us and if you read a lot of Mark's gospel, most of the time Jesus heals someone, sets them free, casts a demon out. He says, okay, be quiet though. Like, don't tell anyone, okay? But of course, they just go tell people. But Jesus specifically says, don't tell people. But in this story, he, he says, no, go tell people. Why? Why the flip-flop with this guy? Since Jesus was banished by this town, he leaves a witness. He shows mercy to this town by leaving a witness of himself there. This town rejected him. They said, no, we do not want you here. If they won't hear him directly, perhaps they'll listen to somebody who's been drastically changed by him. Maybe they'll listen to the testimony of a brother, a coworker, a son. The crazy cool thing is that this guy becomes the first missionary in Mark's gospel. A formerly demon-possessed Gentile sent on a mission to Gentiles. It's not until chapter 6 or 7 that the disciples are sent out. <laughs> this guy's the first one. Jesus is merciful. Secondly, Jesus tells this man to go home to his friends. Now, the word there for friends, it's just the possessive. Basically, go home to yours and tell. Sometimes the most extreme mission work you can and we should be doing is just to go home. Be honest with your family. Be honest with your friends. 
Be honest with your coworkers about how much the Lord, who is Jesus, has done for you, how he has had mercy on you. That's the springing point for mission, dwelling and knowing the mercy that God has had on you. Like Matt was saying earlier, this stuff is uncomfortable because it applies to us. But Jesus has had mercy on us. This man experiences firsthand that Jesus is mighty, meek, and merciful. And so obeying his command is an obvious next step. He does it. It's a simple obedience, telling in his hometown what this guy Jesus did for him. That word Decapolis, it's a Gentile region, ten cities, literally. And he just goes, and he just starts telling people. And everyone marveled. So what are you going to do with Jesus now that you've been reminded of who he is, what he's like? We can bring even the ugly parts of us directly to his feet to deal with because he is mighty. He is meek, so we should draw nearer and nearer, not push him away. And Jesus is merciful, so we should desire that others enjoy this mercy as much as we have. We can entrust ourselves wholly to him. He is trustworthy. He has the ability to hold us in his hands gently. He has the power, but he has the gentleness. I'm going to leave you with his application to this man. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Let's pray. God, we just want to say thank you for the mercy you've had on us. Lord, as we worship you, may we praise you for your mercy that you've had on us. As we take communion, may we remember what your mercy cost you. As we fellowship with one another, may we show each other mercy like you've shown us. And even as we pack these care kits in service to our community, may we show God's mercy to our neighbors in need. Jesus, you are so powerful. You're mighty. You're gentle. You're meek. You're merciful. Thank you that your character, who you are, is somebody we can buy into. We can put all our eggs in that basket. We can we can't just give ourselves completely to you. Help us to do that. Help us to, to offer you the, the parts of our life that perhaps we've been clinging to, the parts that we're ashamed of. Holy Spirit, cover us the rest of our time. Fill us. Help us to walk in communion with you this week. Help us to have a heart for people like you had a heart for people. Thank you for letting us participate in the mission that you have for this world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to keep the fun going, and we're going to praise God for his.